This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, officials are gearing up for the next round of open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. And while the transition may be smooth for some customers, it could be confusing for others. That's right, Mark. And it's hard to believe it's a year already since the first open enrollment. Millions of customers who signed up for automatic renewal during the first open enrollment are beginning to get those renewal notices in the mail already. Those who didn't do so must go into their respective insurance exchanges and reapply. Especially important to remind customers who incomes have changed. That's right, Margaret, because it could have an impact on the subsidies they receive. The Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that anyone who purchased insurance through an exchange during the first open enrollment should check to make sure they are current with all of their information. They also may find plans that are more to their liking during the next round of open enrollment, which starts November 15th. And here's where it can get tricky, Mark. It's the second open enrollment season, but it's the first renewal period on the exchanges, and it's the first time the health subsidies will factor into tax season. And certainly they'll be helped by health insurance navigators who will stay busy during this open enrollment period. So if you're confused about your options, reach out for help. It's available online or by phone in many communities across the country. But the good news is experts don't anticipate the same insurance exchange meltdowns that occurred during the first open enrollment, and that's a positive note. Well, the Department of Health and Human Services also isn't expecting that kind of meltdown. They are working hard to make sure there's no repeat of last year's botched rollouts. Meanwhile, all of this online interaction in the name of healthcare is a relatively new phenomenon, Mark. Health information technology is poised to become the single biggest growth area in the healthcare industry as we engage in 21st century practices, a very rapidly evolving field. In fact, we're just coming off National Health IT Week, where a virtual community of health information technology professionals and enthusiasts got together virtually to promote policies that will help the health IT landscape in the midst of rapid development and innovation. Our guest today is at the forefront of this emerging discipline in healthcare. Indu Subaya co-founded Health 2.0 in 2006 when the idea of matching Web 2.0 concepts to healthcare challenges seemed like something of a fringe idea. Nine years later, their work is clearly in the mainstream. Their global conference are noted for showcasing the most innovative ideas emerging in the ideas that are bound to have impact on healthcare for the future. A great conversation ahead. And Lori Robertson looks into false claims spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Indu Subaya in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Obama administration is engaging in fights on a number of fronts globally with air raids over Iraq and 3,000 military personnel heading to West Africa, where the Ebola epidemic continues to spiral out of control. With 2,200 dead, including many health workers and thousands more infected, beleaguered officials and NGOs on the ground have called for a global response to the emerging crisis. 
The military personnel will coordinate logistical support to overwhelmed health care systems and boost the number of beds needed for the growing number of victims. This comes in the wake of concerns the out-of-control virus could mutate into a more quickly transmittable disease. It begs the question, what took so long to detect Ebola when it emerged months ago in Guinea? Healthcare workers there had not encountered Ebola before, which can mimic symptoms of the far more common malaria or even cholera. It wasn't until a Doctors Without Borders physician on the scene noticed the prevalence of hiccups among those contracting the mysterious illness. Turns out that's a symptom associated with Ebola for unknown reasons. There are many reasons kids in this country are prescribed antibiotics, and although the American Academy of Pediatricians has urged a rollback of prescriptions for things like earaches or colds, apparently providers are reluctant to scale back on their prescribing habits. According to a recent study, while only 27% of ear and throat infections are bacterial, children are being prescribed antibiotics close to 60% of the time, which translates into about 11 million needless antibiotic prescriptions being doled out each year. The numbers of uninsured Americans continues to go down in the wake of the Affordable Care Act. 3.8 million Americans gaining coverage in the first half of this year, according to recent estimates from the Department of Health and Human Services. Meanwhile, as officials prepare for the next round of open enrollment under the ACA, there's a new marketing campaign afoot. Expect more testimonials from real people who gained affordable coverage and more hard information about important deadlines that need to be met to gain coverage and sustain it as well. And while many providers remain skeptical of the health care law, their mood about the profession is on the rise. Doctors are overextended, skeptical of changes wrought by the federal health law, but more optimistic about the future of medicine than they were two years ago. That, according to a survey of 20,000 U.S. physicians. Despite many specific complaints, 71 percent of those polled said they would choose to become doctors again if they were making the choice today, up from 66 percent two years ago, and 50 percent would recommend it to their children, compared with 42 percent in 2012. I'm Mariano here with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Indu Subaya, co-founder and co-chair of Health 2.0, which promotes and showcases emerging health tech innovations through a worldwide series of conferences, prize challenges, and uh, codathons. Dr. Subaya is a recognized thought leader in health innovation industries, having earned her MD at Stony Brook University School of Medicine and her MBA from UC Berkeley. Indu, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You and uh, co-chair Matthew Holt formed uh, Health 2.0 back in 2006. I really want to hear from you about the landscape, but you sort of describe this as a pretty close to the fringe sort of uh, initiative. And you held your first ever health conference in 2007 and your first ever health hackathon in 2010. And in a few short years, the intersection of health and tech has become very much mainstream. Uh, What was the genesis for starting the movement of applying Web 2.0 concepts to the healthcare space? And who are the primary participants and stakeholders driving the uh, Health 2.0 experience? Sure. So if you'll recall all the way back to 2007, this was the year right after Twitter launched. It was the year... Hard hard to believe that it's that that, that (laughs) short of a time. Yeah. Ancient history now. It is. And it was the year we had the iPhone, but we did not have the App Store, if you can believe that. So this is these are really, really early days um, in this new wave of, of, of web and mobile technologies. And what Matthew and I noticed at the time were that there was 
a lot of social sharing going on among patients living with diseases on the internet outside of the traditional healthcare system, and they were using online communities much like Facebook. And we thought, that's really interesting that people are self-organizing in healthcare outside of the mainstream healthcare organizations using social media. And our first conference was focused very much on those types of technology. And so at our first event, a company called Patients Like Me, one of the very first online patient communities for people with very, very serious conditions, they demonstrated, as did Google Health in its first iteration. Um, Microsoft Health Vault was coming out with its first platform for consumers. And um, that was sort of the spirit of the first conference, um, people using the, the web uh, in new ways to connect with each other kind of outside of the doctor's office. And that's why we call ourselves more of a fringe movement, because this didn't come you know, from the hospital or from the health plan. It really came from people. Well, Indy, you've, I think you've introduced over 500 technology companies to the world stage, which is pretty impressive. Uh, for those of us that are operating within the healthcare space, the sheer amount of new technology emerging into the marketplace can be pretty overwhelming in its scope. How do you determine which technological innovations are likely to have a significant impact on healthcare delivery or cost or outcomes? Maybe you could share some of your success stories with us. And we appreciate the uh, the shout out to patients like me. We've had them at uh, our annual symposium, and uh, they certainly do great work. They sure do. So we are looking at the space now and following about 3,000 companies in this early stage digital health ecosystem. And it's staggering considering that at our first conference, uh, there were maybe about 30 companies and we kind of covered the gamut at the time. We classify them into categories based on stakeholders that they're serving. And so a large number of companies are for consumers, but many, many companies in the space are also uh, tools for doctors, nurses, healthcare administrators, policy officials, basically tools that are using data, lightweight technology, um, and offering a very good user experience to make a better decision in healthcare. That, those are our criteria for what we consider to be health 2.0 technologies. Uh, we do look at data in terms of pilot traction, but one of the things that we've stayed clear of at health 2.0 compared to, let's say, our friends in, who are investing in the space is we don't actually place bets on companies. We like to showcase what's new, what's kind of pushing the envelope, even if it's not quite making money yet, because that's our job as we see it. Really, what's changing the game? What's going to make us see things in a new light? And sometimes those companies don't last more than a, more than a few years, but they give us an example and they certainly inspire others to follow on. So we see our role as a little bit differently in that sense. You know, we've always been uh, fascinated with hackathons, and it's such a radical idea in healthcare compared to previous models of siloed research aimed at developing uh, copyrighted inventions that have been the hallmark of health innovations in the past. But uh, for those who dwell outside the tech innovation space, what is the process like? How does it accelerate the process of innovation and product development? So a hackathon is sometimes just a one-day, it can be a two-day event where uh, programmers gather in a room and um, people self-organize into teams to solve particular problems. And they work on those problems over the course of an eight-hour day. And by the end of the day, actually have live working solutions, which is really staggering and something that when I first saw it, I really couldn't believe how fast uh, something could be built. Um, and so it's when you don't just put a bunch of software programmers in a room, but you include 
the other perspectives. And so we find that teams that have a patient on them, those are the types of interdisciplinary teams that really build the best solutions. And I think in that sense, our hackathons are a little bit different than maybe the hackathons you see in, in that solutions. So we'll have doctors in the room, we'll have people living with conditions in the room, and we let people select their own topics. So at the start of the day, a few people will go up to the front of the room and say, I'm working on you know, a, a solution for people with movement disorders, and I'd like to use mm-hmm. the Xbox Connect. And we've actually had this happen in one of our events. And at the end of the day, they've used a gaming system to help people with movement disorders. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. At the end of one or two days, you're not going to get a full-fledged product, but what you will get is possibly a blueprint, um, a prototype, and it has to be functioning at the end of the day so they can't submit a PowerPoint. And often those go on to be real products. And one example I'll give you is we were in San Diego doing one of these with the Department of Health. And at the end of the weekend, they hired the team that had built a mobile application for all of San Diegans uh, to follow their their health and, and to live better in San Diego, part of this public health initiative they were doing. So that team actually got a job at the end of the Isn't hackathon. Right? <laughs> um, I want to build on that a little bit. Uh, you've said that we're at this huge moment where we're now stacking data from multiple sources and that the patients themselves are the source of that data often with wearable devices, electronic scales, portable EKGs more coming to market all the time, the new wristwatch. Your approach to designing for uh, Health 2.0 is in creating interfaces that work between these, what you call data utility layers and the health interface layers. Tell us more about this concept and maybe you could share some examples where this convergence uh, is really at work in the healthcare landscape. We thought there needed to be a term that really encompassed tools and technologies that went beyond the phone. And so we actually uh, did a poll of the audience and we, you know, supplied a few candidate, candidate examples and people voted on the term uh, the health interface layer. Because if you think about it, today your car might be um, a dashboard that has sensors for your health, your home. Um, there are companies that have sensors that go on your refrigerator that can track the movement of an elderly loved one to see if he or she has fallen. There's, of course, now wearable clothing, uh, you know, and T-shirts and socks that have sensors for your health. And so, and uh, to your point about, you know, converging with these data utility layers, there are platforms now um, in health and outside of health that have the ability to aggregate data across millions and millions and millions of records. So uh, an example might be, you know, Samsung and Apple coming into healthcare. They reach millions and millions of of folks, and what would it mean to have data at that scale on those platforms? And that's what we mean by the data utility layer, those aggregated platforms. It could be the health plans uh, platform, a large EMR um, provider. So we think of those platforms working side by side with these devices, sensors, things in our environment um, that capture data, and together that's kind of building this, this rich, rich ecosystem that we consider, you know, the boundaries of Health 2.0. 
We're speaking today with Dr. Indu uh, Subaya, co-founder and co-chair of HealthPoint 2.0, a coalition of 85 chapters now in five continents that offer leading market intelligence on new health technology companies. Health 2.0 promotes and showcases these uh, emerging health tech innovations through a worldwide effort to uh, and series of conferences, prize challenges, and uh, cotathons. Uh, you and co-founder uh, Matthew Holt uh, have uh, spent some years in the health futurist space, anticipating which technologies stand poised to have uh, the most transformative uh, impact on care delivery. Uh, we were just out on the West Coast uh, at a, the first international Meta Project Echo event. Uh, which was a gathering of providers from around the world engaged in utilizing telehealth programs to improve access to care with the hope to reach uh, 1 billion people by uh, 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 2025. And you've seen uh, telehealth in action. And uh, tell us what uh, tech innovations have caught your attention and uh, what needs to be done to spur government policies to support uh, these technologies. Sure. Well, I I think that... because we have such a mandate, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, to reach people uh, that the system isn't reaching or isn't serving well. I think we're looking at technologies that are low cost, that can be used by um, not just professionals. I think if we're just relying on professionals using these technologies, we're just going to miss people because there's just too many um, folks to, to, to reach and, and deliver care to. So I think the role of a remote health and whether that's coming by the way of a kiosk uh, that is in a place that many, many people can access. There are now many of these around uh, the country in, in malls, uh, in public places that don't have a health professional attached. So low health is an example. Uh, that's something that we find exciting where you can go and get your vital signs uh, done at a, at a little station and that data is sent to a care provider um, possibly hundreds of miles away. Also looking at this uh, category of non-invasive diagnostic tests, and an example that um, we just saw recently coming out of New York was a device that uh, kind of looks like a, a plastic, you know, uh, water gun, if you will, and you can hold it to someone's eye, and within a few seconds get the results of an eye exam that is actually in clinical trials comparable to that bulky equipment you see at your optometrist's office. Hmm. And if you think of eye disease around the world, it's, it's a leading cause of blindness. And uh, these types of low-cost technologies that um, can be substitutes in some cases for very expensive things attached to hospitals, I think that's very promising. And, and there's also a new company called Theranos that has claimed that it can, from just a pinprick, uh, just one drop of blood, run a lot of the same lab tests that you now need to collect, you know, four Mm -hmm. and five tubes of blood that you go to for your physical and that take days and days to analyze. And so I would say looking to this category of lightweight diagnostic testing that can send the result to a provider who's far away and get the answers back quickly, that's going to change things a lot for a lot of folks. Well, I think we can uh, take as part of the take-home message on this, the world of apps is exploding. The world of wearables is exploding. Uh, Over 100,000 health and wellness apps 
currently on the market. And we all can see the benefit just from the examples you just gave of using apps to uh, help us make healthcare more accessible and available. And it seemed to me from what I've read, you are also becoming a bit of an interface for developers and angel investors to facilitate this process of moving from concept to marketplace. And tell us more about that. Tell us about how does that collaboration work in the global health 2.0 community in terms of that interface between developers and investors that can really help take some of these potentially very uh, beneficial products to scale and to market? Sure. And I think one of the trends we've seen um, most recently is that people investing in the space are not just financial investors, but they're often providers themselves or large technology companies. There's been a a great increase in the number of corporate investors in, in digital health technology, which I think is very interesting. So uh, there are a number of different ways that uh, Health 2.0 facilitates those, those interactions. We have um, events that actually are a little bit more fancy than speed dating, but effectively allow <laughs> uh, companies to meet with investors based on the criteria the investors ask for. Often um, interesting partnerships and investments have come out of that. We find if we're more, um, if we really prepare the pool of companies uh, for investors ahead of time and, and showcase the ones that really match their interests, um, that's something that, that's worked well. We also run a number of six and 12 month online challenges. And so an example might be a hospital that is looking to purchase the technology for its senior citizens to help them decrease loneliness in the home. An example right there was Palo Alto Medical Foundation. They put up money for the best company that could solve that problem, and they then have a competition. They choose the winner that makes the most sense for them. They award a small amount of prize money, and then they pilot that technology. And so we find that this combination of smaller investment but actual access to piloting mm-hmm. sometimes can work better than mm-hmm. a big amount of money invested in an early stage company uh, that then takes years to figure out what it's doing. So this concept of competition platforms and um, early mm-hmm. stage kind of price competitions is changing things. Always interested in how you spread this wealth of information. You've got a Health 2.0 conference uh, getting underway in San Francisco later this month. Uh, your earlier conferences had just uh, probably in a, in a telephone booth, but now you uh, have thousands who come and uh, sort of a wide range. I note that uh, our good friend Eric Topol is coming uh, to be one of your speakers there. But talk to us about the themes this year. And also, is this streamed out? You know, we, we tried streaming it and it, it kind of had sort of mixed experience with that. So I believe we're not streaming this year. Okay. But we work very hard to make um, it very accessible to anyone who wants to come. And if you're a patient, it's actually free to attend Health 2.0. If you're a startup, we offer a very, very deeply discounted rates. Sure. And so it's really meant to be an inclusive conference for everyone. And we do post all of our videos online um, right after the conference. And there's a very active Twitter stream that anyone can follow uh, remotely. And this year, uh, boy, there's a lot to look forward to this year. Uh, Dr. Eric Topol's keynote will be uh, one to watch. I'll be uh, interviewing the president of Samsung Electronics, uh, President Young Son, who'll talk about uh, their strategy in the space. The founders of MyFitnessPal, uh, probably the largest platform now for self-tracking around the world, uh, they'll both be in attendance in an interview on the first day. 
Um, we're also having uh, Bernard Tyson, the new CEO of Kaiser. He, I think, has a strong imperative around underserved communities. So I think we'll be seeing that message coming out of Kaiser. And as you know, their model for, for many health systems around the country, so a lot of impact there. Uh, there is going to be a wearable fashion runway, oh, which is a fun, a fun experience um, <laughs> with people actually modeling some of the technology from um, smart T-shirts to actually a pair of socks this year that can track whether you're going uphill or downhill on your run. So we'll be, we'll be showing that off. Qualcomm is likely to debut a new type of wearable with possibly a therapy attached to it. Um, Medtronic is going to debut a new type of diabetic sensor that uh, will connect to a mobile technology. So uh, that's always exciting as Healthy Point. We, we launch uh, new companies every year, more than 10. So there'll be some, some ones to look out for. And we'll also have some interesting patient stories. Uh, we're going to have Donna Cryer on the main stage talking about engaging patients across the spectrum. And IBM is bringing Watson figuratively. Oh, great. And Watson will not only uh, possibly make a recipe for us on stage, but will also tell us how it's solving the, the challenge of keeping up with journal articles. You know, a lot of uh, doctors uh, just don't get to read as much as they want to about the scientific literature, and Watson is going to demonstrate how they can take what would take humans a year. No chess matches with Watson. No chess <laughs> Right, right. It would be unfair advantage. But yeah, it should be a, a fun show. We've been speaking today with Dr. Indu Subaya, co-founder and co-chair of Health 2.0, a coalition of 85 chapters worldwide that offer leading market intelligence on new health technology companies. You can learn more about her work by going to www.health2con.com, and that's the number two. And you can follow her on Twitter by going to Blue Topaz. Indu, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It was wonderful to be here. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, birth control has become an issue in a few Senate races across the country, and some Republican candidates are proposing the sale of oral contraceptives, or the pill, over-the-counter without a prescription. The idea isn't new. Reproductive health organizations formed a working group to explore the issue a decade ago. They support over-the-counter birth control pills as a way to increase access for women. But Congress can't make this happen. Instead, it's up to a drug manufacturer to submit an application to the Food and Drug Administration and the FDA to then review and approve it. And when it comes to the pill, there are many different brands and formulations that would have to go through the same process. In Colorado, Republican Cory Gardner has been pushing the idea and says over-the-counter sales would make the pill cheaper. But it's not clear whether that would be the case. The available research is mixed, and it doesn't specifically address the pill. Research from 2005 found out-of-pocket costs decreased for antihistamines, but a 2002 study found consumers' costs went up for certain drugs that moved from prescription to over-the-counter status. Emergency contraception, or the morning-after pill, went up a bit in price when it became available without a prescription. 
Under the Affordable Care Act, most private insurance plans are required to cover the full cost of female contraception, including the pill, sterilization, IUDs, and more, with no cost sharing. What would happen if the pill were sold over-the-counter? Gardner's campaign says he wants women to be able to be reimbursed through their insurance. But that didn't stop Planned Parenthood votes from saying in a TV ad that he wants women to, quote, pay for all of it. That's not what Gardner has proposed. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. In the emergency room or the ICU, clinicians are confronted with a myriad of unpredictable medical crises that sometimes uh, can be challenging to diagnose. Most of these clinicians are now communicating with colleagues via their smartphones, often sending images of a patient's unique symptoms or chest x-rays to one another for shared diagnosis. ICU physician Dr. Josh Landy was noticing a growing trend of image sharing via smartphones to crowdsource second opinions from friends and colleagues across the country. But he also was concerned about the potential violation of HIPAA regulations. So he developed an app for that. He created Figure One, a sort of Instagram for doctors in which images can be de-identified but shared across a dedicated social media platform that would allow input from clinicians within their network. Doctors are using the app to communicate not only with colleagues within their hospital settings, but around the world where someone might have superior expertise with a certain condition. The app was recently used to share a chest image of one of the patients who presented with the Mideastern virus MERS. Dr. Landy says the apps get about a half a million image views a day with about 80 million total views so far. He sees the potential for this platform only growing as more young digital natives enter the medical workforce. Figure One is a free download through Apple app stores and Google Play. A free downloadable app offering secure HIPAA-compliant image sharing among clinicians around the world to reduce the time it takes to zero in on a diagnosis by tapping the collective expert instantly. Now that is a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.